This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3224 for Thursday the 10th of December 2020. Today's show is entitled, Adventures in Retro Computing with the Mac Plus and is part of the series, Mental Health. It is hosted by Paul Quirk, and is about 25 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, I talk more about my hobby with retro computing, and then green sleeves. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Good day, good listener of Hacker Public Radio, and welcome back to the Paul Quirk Show. Today I'm going to talk about my recent adventures in retro computing. But first, I'd like to answer some questions about this hobby. Number one is, why do I have all these old computers? Well, you see, it's like this. Back in the 1980s, after watching a typical 80s movie, like, say, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Back to the Future, my friends and I would always sit around and talk about what we'd do if we had a million dollars, and I thought it'd be a good idea to have a room full of computers just to play with. I remember walking into a computer store as a kid and telling the sales guy how lucky he was to get to spend all day with those great computers. Of course, he would remind me that it would be cooler if they were his and if he didn't have to sell them, and maybe that planted the seed. Some of my friends would ask me, what would I do with all those computers? Well, I'd just play with them, do whatever I wanted with them. If I was rich... I wouldn't have to do anything productive with them, now would I? I mean, I could if I really wanted to, but I always thought that the point of the question was to figure out how to spend my leisure time. I also knew I wanted a really fast hybrid bicycle with lots of gears so I could spend my time as a millionaire riding my cool bike and playing with my cool computers. I think I had some pretty good ideas at the time. As it turns out, I didn't need a million dollars to have those cool computers I wanted in the 1980s because time took care of that for me. Now, this is a great hobby for me because not only does it provide me with a sense of joy and accomplishment, it's also something I can dip into and out of. Life gets real busy sometimes, so it's nice to have a hobby that I can leave for months at a time and then come back to it, especially when the warmer weather is better suited for bicycle rides. I think it's also probably better for the hardware not to get used too often, but just enough to keep things moving. The other question is, why am I still using iOmega zip disks? To be honest, this was all about keeping things within a budget. At the time, I decided to undertake a project preserving my library of Amiga jump disks, because the company behind them seemed to fall off the face of the earth, and I couldn't get in touch with anyone about replacements. I scored a lifetime supply of unopened, brand new iOmega zip disks for free from the local community college, so I kept some for myself and gave the rest away at the free table at World of Commodore that year. At around the same time, I found a working SCSI iOmega zip drive at the local thrift store for a few bucks. I had just bought an Amiga 2000 the year before for 50 bucks and put in an A2090 controller card that I had got for free many years before. 
The zip disk made it easy to transfer those images between my Amiga and my desktop PC. The UAE emulator would mount and read those disks, and I mounted a directory as a second disk in the emulator to simply copy the images over. I had also acquired a Mac Plus years ago, but never got around to doing much with it besides getting a genuine one-button mouse and system software disks. I decided to change that after the last podcast. I discovered that some people have made complete iOmega disk images of old abandoned versions of the Mac OS, including 608, with other abandoned software included. Now, I'm not going to leave links in the show notes because I think we all know abandonware is murky waters in some regions of planet Earth. Uh, The zip drive for my PC is an IDE version salvaged from an old compact. My computer at the time used what we now call a parallel ATA connection. While I do have a a PCIe SCSI card, I prefer not moving the external zip drive around too much for fear of inducing the click of death. Also, there's room in the tower case for an internal drive, so why not? I've held on to that old computer just so I could have use of that zip drive, but it has always been my goal to install it in my current desktop PC. As much as I like to have computers around me, I like them to be of a certain era, and that era is the 1980s. I'm on a mission to get rid of old stuff I don't want or need anymore, and getting that zip drive working on my modern Linux machine means I can get rid of that old computer. At first, I tried a SATA to PATA adapter, but that didn't seem to want to work with the zip drive. Finally, I decided to buy a cheap PCI Express Parallel ATA IDE controller card, and that did the trick. So the first thing I did was try loading in my Amiga Workbench zip disk I had made years ago to try to load that into FSUAE, but my old trick of mounting the zip disk as an Amiga drive wasn't there, like I mentioned in the previous podcast. Now that I think about it, That might have been with WinUAE, since I did the jump disk preservation project before I really got into Linux. After a bit of research, I found out that support for the Amiga Fast File System is now baked into the Linux kernel. So I mounted it using the mount command with the AFFS operator, and then I could see the Amiga partitions on the zip disk fine. Good, now we're up to speed on the Amiga side. Now it's time to give the Macintosh a little love. So I started by downloading System 608 and 701. Both of them were iOmega zip disk images. I used Balana Etcher to flash these images to the zip disk, and the process could not have been easier. I plugged in the zip drive, turned it on, and nothing. Just a floppy disk icon in the middle of the screen with the flashing question mark. I checked my connections and made sure the termination was turned on. I thought it was, so I put my glasses on to be certain, and then realized that on was down for this switch, so I had it backwards. So I turned the termination on, and it booted straight into Mac OS. I immediately went into the games folder, found Lemmings, and launched it. As soon as I pressed the mouse button to start level 1, I got a Mac bomb, with an unimplemented trap error. I decided to do some digging, and found out that only 1 megabyte of RAM was recognized. This is a problem because in order to run a more functional operating system like 701 through to 755, I'm going to need the full 4 megabytes. Now, I do remember opening this Mac at one time and doing something with the memory, but this was a case where my own memory may have failed. When I opened it, I found that the resistor that should have been cut for the 4 megabyte upgrade wasn't cut, so I cut it. I booted again, but the Mac behaved very strangely showing a disk on a black screen and never showing the user interface even after going through the boot up procedure. 
I put my glasses back on and checked the modules, and it turned out that they these were 256K modules. Uh, one was different from the other three, so maybe what I did was to replace a defective uh, SIM stick with a good one. Now, now that I cut the resistor, I figured I might as well commit and take it up to the full 4 megabytes. After looking around, I realized the expansion card in my Amiga 2000 was populated with eight 32-pin 1 megabyte SIM modules. I could take half of them, and the Amiga would still have 5 megabytes in total, which is okay because my A2088 PC card in my Amiga only works if the memory is configured for 6 megabytes or less. I really don't think the downgrade to the Amiga is going to make it any less functional since 8 megabytes was really uncommon in the 1980s, much less 4 megabytes. Then I turned the Mac on, and it took a lot longer to boot up, presumably because it's taking longer to perform a memory check. It was a little unnerving to look at a blank gray screen for so long, and just when I was about to hit the power button, I got the smiling Mac and the zip drive spun up and loaded everything just fine. Now, when working with a computer of this age, the 100 megabyte zip drive is ideal, I think. Consider the Mac SC, which was introduced in 1987. That came with a 20 or a 40 megabyte hard drive. Even at the end of the decade, an 80 megabyte hard drive was top of the line. Unlike parallel port iOmega zip drives, SCSI zip drives and its IDE counterpart, they're fast. Almost as fast as a real hard drive from back in the day, with a maximum data transfer rate of 1.4 megabytes per second. Okay, maybe not quite as fast as a hard drive, but a lot faster than a floppy and right up there with an 8x speed CD-ROM drive. So these behave just like a real hard drive, including the ability to create partitions. So for example, my Workbench 1.3 zip disk for my Amiga is split into two 50 megabyte partitions. One partition is my Workbench system partition, the other is an extras partition, which made it easy to represent the Workbench and extra disks that came with an Amiga system and to map them accordingly. So now I'm going to come clean and tell you that I was an Amiga guy back in the days the Mac Plus was being sold. I read all the magazines, knew all the specs, visited computer stores to try out the hardware, and by gosh, I knew the Amiga was the greatest computer on the face of the earth. I just could not understand why someone would spend more money on an inferior Macintosh. When I rescued my Mac Plus in the late 1990s, my intent was to see just how bad it was up against my Amiga and to try to understand why the Macintosh became such an icon in our culture. To do this, I had to put myself in someone else's shoes, which is easier said than done. I had to take myself back to a time before I owned my first computer and imagine myself in different circumstances. Suppose, for example, that instead of being an impressionable 12-year-old kid, I was a 21-year-old college student or maybe a 30-year-old professional. Imagine if I had grown up in an environment where the only computer I ever used was a pocket calculator. Computers offered demonstrable advantages. Modern word processors were superior to the typewriters I would have been using, and the power and utility of the spreadsheet goes well beyond simple budgeting. Then there were the games, which became really popular because to their alternative, which was television programming, was really crap with bad jokes, canned laugh tracks, and a never-ending stream of annoying commercials. The online world also delivered the promise of up-to-the-minute news and stock quotes with various online services. A young person without a computer would become out of touch with the rest of the world in due time. So the case for owning a computer was pretty clear, 
and it's easy to understand why home computers became so popular in the 1980s. So that only leaves one question. Why Mac? When I think back to those early days, it wasn't very easy to learn how to use a computer. If you were lucky, you had a friend who knew a few things about computers who could teach you. But by and large, the computer enthusiasts of the time tended to stick to their clicks. A computer back then required a large desk and was complicated enough with all the wires and cords that you wouldn't just temporarily set it up at a kitchen table or writing desk like you would a typewriter. Rather, it would occupy a fairly large place like a home hi-fi system or television and VCR and be permanently on display. A student living in a tiny dorm room would certainly struggle with even an Amiga 500 due to the fact that even small color monitors would take up a lot of space because they needed as much space behind them as they needed side to side. So here would have been two problems that needed to be solved before I could have bought a computer. I had to find or create space for it and I had to learn how to use it. It's easy to forget about these things that I had learned about my computer but imagine being a student already uh, crushed with a ton of things to learn and then suddenly I would also need to learn how to use a computer. A busy professional may not even have the time to learn how to use a computer properly. I came to realize that as a 12 year old boy I could have been very flexible in how I was going to live my life. I had all summer to learn about computers and how they worked because I had no other responsibilities besides delivering the newspapers in my neighborhood. I didn't own any furniture yet of my own, and so as I matured, I could make that choice to buy a computer desk instead of a writing desk. Today, I have my Mac Plus set up right next to my Amiga 2000, and it immediately becomes clear that the Amiga 2000 looks very imposing, while the Mac Plus quietly blends in. I can set up my Mac Plus on my writing desk quite comfortably and use it. This is the same writing desk I struggled to set up my VIC-20 on. A good writing desk made of, out of solid wood, not the glue and sawdust manufactured computer desk a traditional computer would have demanded. Uh, this is because monochrome monitors didn't need as much depth as color monitors needed, and the Max monitor was smaller than most while still delivering a very usable resolution of 512 by 342 pixels. The monitor is still stacked on top of the disk drive and motherboard, which does put the monitor at an ergonomically correct height but the components were designed to fit a small footprint. So while the Mac Plus was a computer of compromises, these compromises are what actually made it a better computer. A person buying a Mac Plus over an Amiga, Atari, or PC in the 1980s didn't have to go out to buy new furniture for their new computer, nor did they have to rearrange their home, apartment, or dorm room to set up a functional workstation area, nor did they need to read a thick user's manual or take a night school course in computers to learn how to use it. They could bypass learning a bunch of commands and get straight into the business of learning how to use the applications that they wanted to use. Now, let's think about those applications and how they looked on the screen. Uh, one of the issues we had to deal with when it came to computers in the 80s was eye strain. The Amiga's monitor was effectively a television with the same 50 or 60 hertz refresh rate depending on where you were in the world. This made it great for doing video work and it was fantastic for video games but there was a barely perceptible flicker that was made more pronounced with the dark horizontal lines that would appear across a blank light-colored window. For this reason, many people, myself included, preferred a dark screen background with light-colored text. 
Some even resorted to sticking a mesh overlay on top of their monitor screen to help reduce the eye strain. It's also probably the reason why Commodore included a composite port on the Amiga so one could connect a monochrome monitor. Monochrome monitors in the 80s didn't have these lines and they didn't have a, a noticeable flicker. In contrast to the Amiga's display, the Mac Plus is crisp and solid. When it came to productivity, most printers couldn't even print color, so this was actually a pretty smart compromise. I now believe my aversion to the Mac back in those days must have been similar to the reaction to the automatic transmission when it was introduced to a world that only knew how to manually shift gears. Someone like me would not have seen it as liberating people from the task of shifting gears and freeing us from the demands of the machine. I would see it as a loss of control. However, to the person who never had the time or the opportunity to learn to shift their own gears, the automatic transmission would have been very liberating. We have taken the time to learn what we've learned in order to use these machines, and so it's easy to become resentful of something that can give another person similar capabilities without needing to put in the time or effort to learn. As it turns out, many people who bought an early Mac were using their own valuable time learning something else that had greater value to them. Perhaps they were studying law, and seeing a Mac in the office of a professional sent a signal to everyone that they're so focused on their profession that they have no time to learn how to use a computer. This is how the Macintosh achieved its place as a status symbol and could demand such a high price tag. Sure, computers were a status symbol in and of themselves, but the Mac was clearly a functional status symbol. Or perhaps the buyer of the Macintosh discovered the need to live a minimalist lifestyle. For some people, it is important for them to only own things that bring value to their lives. Steve Jobs himself was a minimalist, and this Mac was speaking to his kind of people. When you think about it, if you eliminate everything that is unnecessary in your life, it becomes much easier to focus on what is needed for your ideas of, for success. And while I believe that Steve Jobs may have been a deeply flawed man, his minimalist ideals were the antithesis to the absurd excess that represented everything that was wrong in the 1980s. Over the decades, we've seen the Mac capture the market of creative artistic people, and now it's easy to see why. To become great at any aspect of the creative arts, whether it's music, photography, graphics, it takes a considerable amount of time and effort for someone to become great at what they do. I know this all too well, even with a professional camera and many years of experience, my photographs today still don't come close to those of a seasoned professional. Their reason for paying for professional tools like Lightroom are the same reasons why I would only want to use professional tools in my trade. We both want to deliver a high quality product in as little time as possible, and good tools contribute to an efficient workflow. There are elements of Darktable that would be familiar to a seasoned graphics artist that I know nothing about, but I can compile a kernel for whatever that's worth. Even in my own life, I question my need for a computer. I didn't need one to complete my three years of trade school, and even today, I'd rather go for a long bike ride or take my camera on a hiking expedition if the weather's fair. So now we've come to the real reason why I have this collection of computers from the era of my teenage years. It started out as a thought experiment that has grown to help me to open my mind and see things from different perspectives. I finally got Lemmings to run on the Mac Plus, and the gameplay was dreadful. Honestly, it's better on a Commodore 64. Then again, the type of person who would buy a Mac back then might not have had enough time for video games, or maybe they already owned a video game console, 
or maybe the strategy and textile games that play very well on this computer were more to their tastes. Whatever the case may be, I can now see the reasons why the Mac was so revolutionary, and just like that, I indoctrinated myself into the cult of Mac. Well, not really, because Apple today is not the same revolutionary company that made the Mac Plus. See, the original Mac Plus was introduced in 1986 and sold well into the year 1990 as a consumer-level premium computer. It was built to last, and this shows. The last supported OS for this Mac was System 7.5.5, which was released 10 years after the Mac Plus was introduced. I tried Jigsaw running System 7.5.5 on my Mac Plus, and it ran just fine. It really justifies a higher price tag considering the build quality and length of support. I think we know that today's Apple isn't like that. The closest thing we have today to this sort of design philosophy is in products like the Raspberry Pi and the Pinebook. So no need to worry about me. I'm beyond the cult of Mac. I'm now indoctrinated in the cult of open source. If there's enough of us, maybe we can turn it into a religion. My Pinebook reminds me of this philosophy. And this experience makes me think there's a market for a high-end, premium, minimalist, open-source, open-hardware-based computer with 10 years of support. I believe there's an opportunity to develop open-source software into premium, professional-grade software. I would hope that it wouldn't become so obtuse as to set up something called a genius bar. Yeah, that was another wrong term for Apple. Well, looks like we're getting into the holiday season, so let's listen to one of my holiday favorites. The name of this song is Greensleeves, which is a traditional English folk song from the Renaissance era. While this song is often regarded as an anonymous piece, many English composers are on record for having claimed authorship. The leading theory today is that it was created by a Spanish composer named Santiago de Murcia, and this performance was performed by Paul Arden Taylor and Carol Holt. Enjoy.
Well, that's it for this episode. I hope everyone is doing well, and I'm certainly enjoying your podcast contributions to HPR. I don't know how much longer I can keep doing a weekly show for, as my calendar for the new year is starting to fill up. But hopefully, more people will record their own episodes. I think if everyone listening records their own shows, we can keep this going and have a lot of fun doing it. So, as usual, please remember to drive safe and have fun. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.